We're starting a, a new series from the book of Daniel today called Counterculture. Uh, and we're going to be in this series until Steve is back from his sabbatical. Um, and we're going to be uh, studying the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel really has two parts. Uh, the first half of the book is, uh, contains stories of, of Daniel and his friends. Uh, and the second half of the book contains Daniel's visions and prophecies uh, about uh, his present and future. And since we just have five weeks, we're going to stick to the stories from the first half uh, of the book of Daniel for this series as we, as we ask how to live for God in a culture that isn't living for God. Uh, so why don't we pray before we uh, dive into this together. Uh, Father, uh, we just sang about how you're better uh, than, than all these other things that we uh, still have a tendency to pursue. Uh, and Father, I just pray that um, we would lean into those words and live those words uh, as we go through this series in Daniel, that, uh, that we would more and more believe and, and, and live out that you are better than these things that uh, we have a tendency to chase after. Um, so Father, I pray this morning that, uh, that, that you would get me out of the way uh, and speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So on January 5th, 2007, uh, my family loaded the moving vans, and we left Michigan to head south to Decatur, Illinois. Uh, I was 27 years old at the time, uh, and I had lived every one of those years in Michigan. I was uh, born and raised just north of Detroit, uh, so the Lions and the Pistons and the Red Wings are in my blood. Um, and I guess the Tigers are too, uh, but I find baseball boring, so I don't watch a lot of Tigers. Um, my dad did some of his college education at the University of Michigan, uh, so I grew up a Wolverine as well, uh, which I know doesn't endear me to the Illini crowd, but, you know, deal with it. <laughs> uh, I cheered for Michigan sports teams uh, my whole life, as you can see, I, I still do. Um, I eat Michigan food. Uh, I, I know that this is going to be a controversial statement in a room like this, but uh, Detroit-style pizza is better than Chicago-style pizza. I'm just going to say that. Um, and, and it's just, it's my truth. That's how I live my truth. Uh, if you don't believe me, if you don't even know what Detroit-style pizza is, I wouldn't blame you. Um, go to Champagne, hit up Jet's Pizza, um, and just get a pizza. And that'll be Detroit-style, and you will thank me later. You'll love it. So Detroit-style pizza is the way to go. Um, I, I talk the way Mich people from Michigan talk. I didn't realize that we have an accent until I got here, and y'all told me we do. By the way, I picked y'all up from y'all. Um, I never said that before I moved here. <laughs> and, uh, and so apparently we have an accent. And, and God called me to serve at this church in central Illinois. Um, and, you know, my, my friend Steve uh, came here before me. And, uh, and, and he, you know, talked me into coming. And I'm really glad that he did. Uh, he, he talked me into it. And then I fought with God over it. And then God won. And I came. And, uh, and I'm really glad that I'm here. Um, but, man, there are some cultural differences here. Than, than what I grew up, than, than what I was used to. Um, and I, I guessed some of them coming into this. I, I, there's not a lot of Lions or Wolverines fans around here. I kind of figured that would be true. Um, but there were some things that caught me off guard uh, when, when I came down to Illinois. It's only a five-hour drive to get here from uh, where Sarah and I used to live. But I discovered that the language uh, that you guys use in central Illinois is, is a little different than what I grew up with. Uh, for example, when my family first got here, when we went out to eat, a waitress asked my son if he wanted a cheese toasty. And I'd never heard of such a thing in my entire life. 
and I had questions. Um, there was just, just an assumption that I would know what that was, but I had questions. Um, is it a food? Or is, you know how like when you go to a, a, a restaurant and they have a children's menu and they have like a goofy mascot on the children? I thought maybe cheese toasty was the mascot for like this children's menu, right? Um, but no, it, it's a food I found out. Um, but I had more questions, right? The, I, I wanted to know like did every dish on this menu at this restaurant sound, that it was, sound like it was named by a toddler? Like did they let toddlers come in and name all of their, like did they have a round crusty or a noodle saucy? Like did, did they have... <laughs> goofy names like that. When Seth was old enough to go to school, his preschool teacher put out a supply list and, and she told us that he would need his own crowns. Like to make believe that he was a king. <laughs> like he needed some crowns. Literally it was months before I realized she was saying crayons. No idea what she was talking about that he would need to get a bag of crowns. What does that mean? And listen, I haven't given up being a fan of Detroit sports teams uh, or, or the Michigan Wolverines, I won't say cheese toasty or crowns. You're, you won't hear that coming out of my mouth. But I have embraced some things in central Illinois culture. I don't want to make it sound like I'm completely oppositional to the place where I live. I do own, don't tell anybody, <laughs> YouTube. I, I do own a University of Illinois shirt. I do now. I, and I wear it as well, um, and, I, and I, I do, truth be told, find myself rooting for the Illini when they're not playing a Michigan school. And so like, that's about as good as you're gonna get from me on that front, but I've come a ways, I've come a long ways. I now know what Casimir Pulaski Day is. Didn't know what that was before I came here. I know what it is now. And listen, here's the big one. I've come to believe that the horseshoe is the single greatest culinary invention of all time. I can't believe I lived 27 years of my life not eating horseshoes. That's time you just don't get back. You just can't go back in time and eat the horseshoes that you should have been eating. I've been trying to catch up uh, on the horseshoes that I missed, hence the weight gain. So, <laughs> so when you move to a new place, um, or, or even if you're just visiting a new place for, for a little while, deciding which parts of the culture to adopt and which parts to reject can be tricky. Um, it, it can be, uh, you, you, can, you can have some opposition if you don't fully dive in and live the way everyone else around you thinks you should be living. You want to be accepted, you want to belong, uh, but you also don't want to give up everything from home, everything that you're used to and you grew up with. So how do you know? How do you know when to buy in to the culture around you and when to stand up against the culture around you? And that's the situation that Daniel and his friends are in as, as we start the book of Daniel. They, they've been forced to leave their homeland, uh, the place where they grew up in Israel, and settle uh, in the palace of the king of Babylon in a country that was Israel's enemy. And each new chapter in Daniel tells a new story with new challenges, and, and each time Daniel and his friends have to decide how will they interact with a foreign culture that's, that's not their own. And so chapter 1 opens up with some background. We're going to start right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. 
So the beginning of the book of Daniel happens during Babylon's rise to power. Um, this is after the decline of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the, the Assyrian Empire conquered uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and, 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 but the southern kingdom of Israel was able to continue to stand until uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came along. Uh, and so after the Assyrian Empire declined and before Persia grew up to be strong enough uh, to challenge anyone, uh, the, the empire of Babylon existed. And, and we know historically that the third year of King Jehoiakim in Judah was 605 BC. Like a lot of times we read the Bible and it's just like, oh, we have to trust that like this happened, but we don't exactly know. We know. We know when this guy was king, 605 BC specifically. Uh, We know that Daniel remained in Babylon uh, until it was conquered by King Cyrus of Persia, spoiler alert, uh, which happened in 539 BC. So, So we know that Daniel spent about 66 years serving God in a foreign country and a different culture. And the narrator in Daniel chapter 1 throws us right into the action. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has attacked Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. Second Chronicles 36 kind of describes this historically, uh, gives us a, an account that says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked Jehoiakim and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. And so the king of Babylon, uh, the leader of one of the most powerful armies in the world at the time, dominated Jerusalem, the, the capital city of, of God's people. And, uh, and he took away some of their most prized possessions. Uh, he took captive some of the brightest young people uh, in their culture. Um, he plundered God's temple. Uh, and, and he took some of the, the articles, uh, some of the items used for worship uh, to display as trophies in his own temple Uh, to to show that not only did he defeat the nation of Judah, but he defeated the God of Judah. And we would expect God to to have none of this. But that's not what happens. It appears that Nebuchadnezzar has power and God's people and God himself don't. At least not compared to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. But the narrator has a different view. The narrator sees it differently. In verse 2, we read that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. That Nebuchadnezzar was powerful, but that's not the reason he was able to conquer Jerusalem. That only happened because it's what God wanted. The Lord delivered. This was God's plan. So before we get very far into, the very, into this first story in Daniel, just two verses in, we see that it's really God who's in control of the events of history. And this is important for people reading this book, uh, you know, Jews who are in exile from their land, watching their, their capital city be conquered to see that, that no, God is still in control. God still has a plan. He hasn't abandoned you or given up on you. That would be encouraging. And each chapter in this book tells a different story, but every single story comes back to this, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is in command, even even when it doesn't look like it, even when it looks like everything is falling apart and nobody's living the way God intends, we find out that God is still at work in the events of history. And so we pick up the story in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, I've been practicing my pronunciation this week, 
chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve at the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So this lines up with what we know about the Babylonian Empire from history, that, that when they conquered a nation, they took the leaders of the captured people into exile to use their skills and their resources in their own capital city. Um, this is just kind of the way they did things uh, because as a growing empire, they were in constant need of, of new leadership and bright young minds. And so at the time that this happened, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to control Judah without actually taking it over. Um, it, it's not for 18 years uh, that, that, that he actually goes in and, and fully conquers the, the southern nation of Judah. So for 18 years, he's just trying to control them from a distance. And so he took the brightest of the young leaders to train them in the ways of Babylon. And the idea was for, for members of the, the upper class to fall in love with the Babylonian way of life and either return to positions of influence at home or stay in Babylon uh, and lead the Babylonian way. And Daniel and his friends were part of this group uh, from the royal family and from the nobility. Uh, and the fact that, that they were young, uh, this, this word that they were, they were young men, uh, likely means that they were teenagers at the time, 14, 15 years old when this happened. Um, so we, and, and we know they were good looking, they were healthy, they were smart, they were the desirable young men of the upper class of Judah. So they were, they were taken to be trained and immersed in the culture of their enemies. Um, so kind of like high school, um, being, <laughs> being trained. In, anyway, so they were given new names. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew names all contained references to God. Uh, that that uh, suffix L, E-L, like on Daniel, um, that, that is a reference to God. And they all can, their, their Hebrew names contained references to God, but the new names that they were given associated them with Babylonian gods instead. Um, but we don't read anything about protest uh, or refusing to accept their new names uh, because apparently what people called them wasn't a big deal for them. Um, and they also didn't refuse the, the three-year program of, of training and education uh, in Babylonian culture, which almost certainly, by the way, would have included studying astrology and reading signs and omens and, and studying other forms of, of divination that God warns against throughout the Bible. So maybe not kind of like high school, maybe a little more like Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> They're studying these weird like signs and omens and, and, and you know, reading the tea leaves, right? Um, and so they studied those things, things that, that in other places in the Bible, God says, don't have anything to do with that stuff. Um, that would have been part of their curriculum. And they, and they don't rebel against that. They don't refuse to study those things. Um, but when the king tries to give them quality food from his own table, that is where they draw the line. How dare you give me 
the best food in the country. Up to this point, they've given no resistance, right? They, they, they haven't, not that we know of anyway, no resistance to, to assimilation to Babylonian culture, to learning Babylonian ways, to letting people call them by Babylonian names. They, they've let that stuff go. They accepted their names. They've submitted to a foreign curriculum to study things that we know that God opposed. But when it comes to the king's food and the king's wine, Daniel takes his stand. And we should ask, Why? Why, why this? Why choose this as the line in the sand that he won't cross? Well, to answer that, we need to keep reading the story. In verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were, uh, wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So what's so wrong with eating the king's food? Well, there's a lot of theories. Uh, that, that are rolling around out there. It could be uh, the, the kosher dietary laws of the Old Testament. That's probably the first thing that our minds go to. The idea that Daniel and his friends uh, would not want to defile themselves by breaking God's laws uh, about food. Uh, that God's very specific in the Old Testament about what his people uh, can eat and what they're, they're not allowed to eat. But if this is about staying kosher and following the food laws, why, why refuse the wine? God's food laws don't restrict anyone from wine uh, unless they're taking a, a very specific vow uh, in the Old Testament, which was somewhat rare. Uh, God's people are not restricted from wine in, in the food laws. And so saying no to, to the food and the wine doesn't seem like it's about that. So if it's not about that, maybe it was about uh, rejecting food that had been offered to idols first. Uh, that was a common practice uh, in the ancient world that, that the best foods were offered to the gods and to the temple priests and whatever was left after the offering would make its way to the king's table. And so if this is food from the king's table, it probably was used in, in, as a sacrifice to idols at some point. And so maybe this was, this was a protest about I'm not going to eat anything that's been offered to an idol. Um, but listen, Daniel doesn't avoid all the food that comes from the palace. He, he does eat the vegetables, and the vegetables would have been offered to the gods too. This is all food that would have been offered as a sacrifice uh, to, to, the, to the gods. So they eat the vegetables. It's probably not about that. Uh, some people think that it was a political statement, uh, that, that eating the food that the king provided meant that I accept that the king is lord over my life. Uh, and so some people think that, that, that this, this was a political statement. But again, Daniel did eat some of the food. Uh, he, he didn't say no to, you know, I will not eat anything that you provide me. You're not in charge. He ate some. He ate the vegetables. Um, and so others get to this point and they say, well, it has to be that the Daniel fast is a biblical call to become a vegetarian. 
that Daniel and his friends were making a, a healthy lifestyle choice. And the thing is this, we, we know from later in the book of Daniel, uh, in, in chapter 10, verse 3, to be specific, that Daniel did eat rich foods like meat and drank wine. So this wasn't a lifetime thing that, that Daniel and his friends did. They didn't say, we, we're giving up meat for life. We'll never eat food from the king's table ever. We found out later in Daniel, he does do this. So this is a for a time a commitment they're making for a period of time uh, that, that, they, that we're gonna do. So if it wasn't to stay kosher or avoid idolatry or promote dietary health or make a political statement, then what was it about? Well, here's, here's my theory. Daniel and his friends are in the middle of a process of education and preparation for service in a foreign culture. And their, their minds and their bodies are being fed by Babylon. And if, if they do well, if they're successful, who gets credit for their success? The Babylonians do. The king, ultimately. He, he gave them all the food that they needed to stay healthy, all the education and training that they needed to be successful in Babylonian culture. Why would they ever need God when the king can provide all that they need? I think they chose a different diet to remind themselves who is in control to remind themselves that it's not Nebuchadnezzar that controls my life, even though it seems like it most of the time, but it's God. And there's a lot of things about their lives that these guys can't control. They can't control where they live. They didn't choose to live in Babylon. They can't really control how they dress. Their clothing is provided for them by the king. They can't choose what they get to study. They don't pick their classes, right? They're not selecting their courses. They don't even get to choose what name other people will call them. All of those things are choices that are taken out of their hands, out of their control. And they wisely choose not to fight over the things that are out of their control. But when an opportunity comes up for them to, to choose to be different than the culture around them, as a reminder about who's really in control in their lives, they jump at the chance. And right before Jesus went to the cross, he prays this really long prayer in, in John 17. And near the end, he says this, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And these verses are where we get the saying, in the world, but not of the world. Um, in, in other words, Jesus wants us to live in this world and interact with our culture without letting our culture become our God. In the world, but not belonging to the world. And not everything in our culture is evil. Daniel shows us that, that there are things we can participate in while still being faithful to God. It's not necessary to reject everything in the culture around us any more than Daniel had to reject everything in the culture around him. There were things that he found that he could uh, embrace and, and even, even excel at in Babylonian culture without uh, betraying his faithfulness to God. And it's up to us to examine our culture, to be familiar with it what, so, so that we can know where we can join, what we can say, that's fine. Well, I'll be a part of that. We know when we can just tolerate. Like, I'm not going to join in that, but that's fine for you. And, and when we should oppose. 
that, that I need to stand up against that in culture. Daniel and his friends spent three years studying. They studied the culture of Babylon, all the, all the things that, that Babylon did, all the ways that they lived, they studied those things in order to figure out how best to serve God while living there. And I think that's what it looks like to be in the world, but not of the world. I think we have to know the world we live in. I, I, I get a huge kick out of church signs. Um, I think they're hilarious because they're so awful sometimes. That's why they're so funny. My mom sends me funny ones that she, she sees as she drives by. And, uh, and, and this one that I drove by in Michigan one time um, didn't make me laugh at all. It said, uh, it said uh, Christians read the Bible, pagans read the news. And I think that's terrible. I think that's a terrible attitude for God's people to have. That we don't, we're going to bury our heads in the sand and not know at all what's going on in the culture around us. I think that's a terrible attitude to have. Yes, of course we should read the Bible and, and read God's word, but we should also be studying our culture. We should also know what's going on in the world around us the way Daniel uh, and his friends did in Babylon. And I think the way that Daniel went about standing up against culture is also important for us today. The, the diet was a private matter not a public protest. There might be times to protest publicly, but Daniel teaches us that it's not all the time. And I think we've lost that a little bit. I, I think in our culture right now, if you don't stand up and join in public protest, uh, then, then you know, your, your silence is seen as weakness. And Daniel teaches us that it is important to choose our battles. Public protest is not an all-the-time thing for God's people. They didn't stage a food strike or a walkout. They didn't make a public statement. Daniel quietly approached the chief official to ask permission. If just he and his friends could do this thing. And the official disagreed with them. Uh, he refused to participate in their plan, but he didn't reject them. Uh, he didn't turn them in. He could have caused a lot of trouble for them, but, but God caused him to show favor, it says, uh, and, and so uh, he let it go. It was okay. And since Daniel didn't make it a public issue, it didn't force his hand. It, he, would, he didn't have to rebuke Daniel publicly because the chief official at this point is the only one who knows that Daniel and his friends even want to do this. And so because Daniel approached it privately, it was able to stay private and not blow up in his face. And he was able to move on to plan B. He didn't panic or get angry or give up. He just chose a different strategy shows us that Daniel is wise. The Bible holds up Daniel as kind of this model of, of what wisdom, godly wisdom looks like, especially living in a foreign culture. He, he knows the right action for the right situation. He knows the right thing to say to bring about a godly result, even in an ungodly culture. And in this case, he turns to the guard uh, that the chief official put in charge of the food, and he proposes a test, a 10-day test. Now, I'm guessing that the guard liked the idea um, because I'm, and this is a total guess, but I'm guessing that the meat and the wine, the really great rich foods that Daniel and his friends were giving up, they had to go somewhere. They had to be accounted for somewhere. They couldn't just sit there, right? So I'm thinking the guard and maybe his family got a little extra portions on the side. So yeah, the guard's like, sure, 10 days. That sounds good. You know, I'll bring this food home to my family. And the guard, so the guard agrees. The test works. Uh, and Daniel and his friends eat vegetables for the glory of God for three years. 
And Daniel reminds us what Jesus said in Matthew 10 uh, when he sent his disciples out to share the gospel. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus doesn't call us out, out of the world into this safe haven of rest and comfort. He says, come, you know, he says, he does say, come to me, all you, know, you, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so, yes, he does comfort us. He does give us rest, but we're not to stay there for all time. He sends us out. And when he sends us out, he calls us to go out as vulnerable sheep into a, wor- a world that's full of wolves. And so we have to find some ways to guard our hearts, ways that we can stay faithful to God because otherwise we'll either be eaten by the wolves of the world or we'll become wolves ourselves in order to fight back with the world and God doesn't want either of those things for us. God doesn't want us to to be weak and and eaten up by the world but God also doesn't want us to, to rise up and fight fire with fire. Otherwise Jesus never would have instructed to turn the other cheek to pray for our enemies. And so uh, we go out into the world as vulnerable sheep in a world that's filled with wolves uh, and we do it by being both wise and innocent. Shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. We're wise when we know the ways of the world and we understand what might happen, how people might hurt us, how people might try to use us. We're wise when we know the temptations that we face Uh, the things that might be coming, and we we know how to escape them, uh, how to avoid them. We're innocent when we keep our focus on God's way instead of getting our way. We're innocent when we change the world with God's grace and beauty and peace rather than letting the world change us by hardening our hearts and running for protection and safety. We're called to be wise and innocent as we go out. We're not called to hide. We're called to engage. And Daniel teaches us that our struggle is not about making the culture Christian, but about how a Christian should live in the culture. The way Christians can interact with culture, it really boils down to four main strategies. We can resist it. We can embrace it. We can put up with it. Or we can transform it. And many Christians choose resistance, uh, picketing and boycotting and lobbying for legislation, uh, sometimes even resorting to violence. Some Christians go the opposite route and they fully embrace whatever culture throws at them. They just become a disciple of the culture. Others try to keep the church and state separate at all times. Uh, So they follow Jesus in the church and they follow their political party everywhere else. And some try to transform the culture by working from within it Uh, to make it better using God's wisdom. And as nice as it would be for the Bible to tell us which path to take as we engage culture, it doesn't. It doesn't. And Daniel makes it even harder because he uses more than one of these strategies. Daniel stood against culture when it came to his diet, but he embraced culture when it came to his education. He also kept his protest quiet and personal basically just kind of putting up with culture as he did his own thing. So Daniel teaches us that there's more than one way for a believer to to engage an unbelieving world. Every person and every situation is different. Each one calls for wisdom and action that will honor God. 
And fortunate, fortunately, God didn't leave Daniel on his own. If we read the rest of the story, starting in verse 17, to these four young men, God gave. God didn't leave them alone. God gave them what they would need. He gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. God gave. He gave them all knowledge and understanding. He gave Daniel the the rare ability to understand visions and dreams, uh, which will come in handy as we'll see next week. The gifts that God gave them made them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters who served as the king's advisors in Babylon and it led to positions of influence and leadership in the culture. And God keeps working even when the culture keeps opposing him and he invites us to to join him in his work by living in the culture but staying faithful to him. God is working in history. At the beginning of this story, he delivered the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He was in control of historical events. He's working for those who are faithful to him. In the middle of the story, it says God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Even in the midst of this, uh, this story, God is working for Daniel on his behalf. But not only is God working for the faithful, he's working in the faithful. At the end of the story, God gave knowledge and understanding. In the course of a single chapter, God delivered, God caused, God gave. Three verbs that show a God who is actively involved in the lives of his people as we live in a culture that opposes our faith. We don't always know the right thing to do, the wise choice to make, whether we should engage or oppose, but God is with us, helping us to live in wisdom and make those decisions. Jesus calls his disciples sheep and the rest of the world wolves, but he demands courage from the sheep to take the risk to live among the wolves. Daniel's food request seems simple enough, but it took a lot of courage. To refuse the royal diet could have been taken as an insult to the king and an act of disobedience. By taking this stand, Daniel and his friends were setting themselves apart from others. The the other students would surely eventually see this and wonder, what's going on? What, you think you're better than us? Why are you doing it differently? Their behavior might have jeopardized their opportunities to advance in the culture and get ahead. It would have been tempting to just eat the food that was offered because it it probably was really good food. And and who would know? They They were 900 miles away from home. They could have become bitter at God for letting them fall into captivity. They could have blamed God for their situation and just turned their backs on him and and just become Babylonians. They certainly were in a position to do that. But instead... They found a way to be in the world without belonging 
to the world. They found a way to bear witness to the God of the Bible, the God of history, the God of gods, the King of kings and, and, and Lord of lords, the, the, only, the, you know, the, the one and only God, not Nebuchadnezzar, but the Lord. They found a way to bear witness to him in a culture that didn't know him and, and, and lived certainly not for him in many ways against him. And they found a way to stay faithful to him in that culture by choosing something difficult when it mattered. Why don't we pray? God, the, the book of Daniel is really challenging because it's, it's actually not that hard to see the world that we live in. Um, a culture that uh, is not always on the same page with the way that you're calling us to live. And Father, it's, it's, it's difficult for us sometimes to reconcile what the world expects from us and what you expect from us. And, and, and it's difficult to know uh, how to choose, what to choose, when to choose. So Father, we do pray for wisdom. And as, as we enter into a time of communion with you, uh, we, we pray for togetherness. Uh, with you, absolutely, but also with one another. As we, as we live for you in this culture that we don't have to do it alone, uh, but we can do this together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. When Daniel was in, in Babylon, he resolved not to participate in the royal diet as a way to stay set apart for God. I love that word, resolved. He firmly decided. He was resolute. And years later, Luke used the same word leading up to the cross when he said that Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew that death was waiting for him there. But he resolved anyway. He firmly committed. And so we take communion every week uh, to remember what Jesus resolved for us and, and to consider what he's asking us to resolve for him. His body given for us. And his blood poured out for our sins. Amen. Daniel and his friends resolved not to eat the king's food, but instead to rely on God to provide. And so this week, look for ways you can resolve to do things differently than the world around you. As a reminder to rely on God to provide. Why don't we sing one more song this morning together as we're dismissed.